Okay, here's the opening bit. Uh, you know how people don't like in the video game Metroid Other M, Samus keeps talking about the baby? What if what if she was talking about the rapper, the, the baby? <laughs> Welcome to Super Smash Bros. Each time we play through and discuss a game representing a different franchise in Super Smash Bros. We examine games we've heard and thought a lot about, but have never played through ourselves. I'm your co-host, Justin. And I'm Magellan, the other co-host. What's up? This time, we're playing Metroid Prime. Originally released in 2002 for the GameCube, the game was co-developed by Nintendo and the American Retro Studios. Metroid Prime translated the 2D exploration of the Metroid series to a first-person 3D perspective and stated parts of the series' backstory more explicitly through optional text logs. In Metroid Prime, bounty hunter Samus Aran explores the planet Talon 4 to track down Ridley and the Space Pirates. There, Samus finds a world both familiar and alien, where ruins formerly inhabited by the Chozo people who raised her fall under the influence of the corruptive substance Phazon. Magellan, if Samus used her scan visor on the part of your heart that was looking forward to Metroid Prime, what lore text would she find? <laughs> um, that's a great Thank way you. to Thank ask. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> that's a great way to ask a very straightforward question uh <laughs> <laughs> i you know uh so i'm very curious to play metroid prime for a couple reasons mm-hmm. um i have minimal experience with metroid games i haven't really played any of the 2d ones i had metroid prime 2 echoes uh appropriately titled actually maybe we sh- maybe we should have done that one <laughs> didn't think of that but i i had that one on the gamecube and i played a bit of that um but i i didn't finish it i just remember that there was like dark samus and there was a dark world and it felt kind of complicated to to figure out where you were and where you're supposed to go and that kind of thing so I have that background with the series, and that's pretty much it. And then I know that people are so hype for the the day when we finally get Metroid Prime 4, if that's ever going to happen or when that's going to happen. Hype enough that they had to restart the development of the game because they didn't <laughs> want to disappoint people. Right. Um, and so that that also makes me interested in what exactly is it that people love about this series and and whether or not that exists in the first game because at least thinking back to metroid prime 2 it was mm-hmm. it was cool but i could think of a bunch of other first or third person sci-fi shooter games that are better um mm. so so yeah i'm also not a huge fan of metroidvanias in general mm. um and metroid is part of that name uh <laughs> so <laughs> we'll we'll see how that goes. But what about you? Also, I played Metroid Prime 2 Echoes and didn't get very far with it. Although I did have my friends oh. play the multiplayer, local multiplayer mode in that yeah. like a dozen times or so. I played that a bunch too. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. <laughs> we played surprisingly similar video games. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, and there's a few other Metroid games that I got like one or two levels into. The NES one, um, Fusion on the Game Boy Advance, and Prime Hunters. Uh, the DS one. Uh, And and I've never really gotten very far. Um, I do remember um, Metroid Prime 2 Echoes, like spending a bunch of time trying to turn Samus into a ball, lay down a bomb, and then lay down another bomb in midair to do a double jump. Mm -hmm. I think that's 
like maybe a third of the time in my game I spend in that, and I feel like that's very in tune with what you're supposed to do in the series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm also... I have not gotten super into this uh, Metroidvania genre where, um, if you don't know, it's the world is... You can kind of go anywhere in the world. Some parts are harder than others, but it's not like you're explicitly blocked from going to places until you get certain things usually. It's more like you could try to go to anywhere, and there's different power-ups you can get out of order that get you to some new places. I do. I have owned the game for a while. I got it when it became, when the trilogy, when the Metroid Prime 1 through 3 became available on the Nintendo Wii U eShop. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of because um, I remember in, in my sophomore year math class, there were some people who like kept talking to me about Metroid Prime 3 and wanted me to get them to play the series. And I went back and tried to get them to play the DS RPG, The Ruins With You, um... Mm-hmm. But if since I was thinking like I'm I am this passionate about like trying to get people to play this one game I really love, if people think the same way about this other game, I should at least like get it when it becomes available. But I've never actually like started since then. Yeah. Um I'm excited about that. Yeah. I did play a couple of the Shantae games, those are a similar genre. Uh I don't know that I'm familiar with those ones. Uh there, it was a Game Boy Color game that people really liked, and then tried to get it back, and it was kind of in the, like the twenty eleven like indie, uh-huh. sort of bigger indie studios thing. It was one of the games there. I gotcha. Uh, I see. I I also feel like I don't know anything about the lore of Metroid. Yeah. Um. So the fact that there's lore things to find, uh, and the fact that there that Samus was raised by someone or something yes (laughs) it's like okay i didn't realize that was a question that i had or that was answered (laughs) but now i want to know the answer i think it's a big part of um the the metroid original or the super nintendo one like are in like the place where she was raised or something Mm -hmm. and this this game is also by she was raised by like bird bird people uh, okay. And well, I, I guess we're gonna we're gonna see the, the backstory in the game, so I I don't have to say it all right now. Uh, yeah, my understanding is um, these are like really silent games where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're in a weird like foreboding place, but the places you're in also like have to do with like Samus's own past and her own like family life and mm. like the personal connections to the like group she's fighting against. If you if you don't think about it, it's kind of like simple, and you're like running and shooting. But there's like, my understanding is there's like different layers of emotion it's trying to impose on you. Yeah, I definitely remember Prime Two being uh, a very atmospheric game. Like I don't really remember. I'm sure there's music in it, but you know, whereas with Halo, you know, music is like a huge central part of it. I, I don't mm-hmm. remember it being as important in uh, in in Metroid Prime 2. So, yeah, it feels like it's supposed to evoke, you know, Alien or something like that, where mm. it's like, oh, uh-oh, I'm scared. What's going on? Yeah. Um, yeah. From what I've read in, like, Nintendo Empower and things, it's inspired by uh, Geiger, and it's supposed to be... Uh, like okay, the sure. Whole, the world around you is organic in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm also I'm interested in how the world overall feels. Like I know it's supposed to be sort of interconnected, but I also know it's divided into different areas and 
I've heard like the first game in the Metroid Prime series, the areas are kind of more traditional video game level theming. Like there's an ice world, a, a, a hot area, maybe mm-hmm. like a desert. I, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm interested in how much the world feels like video game levels, how much it feels like one space you're reaching out to more and more parts of. Yeah. You're playing on the GameCube version, right? Assuming I win this eBay auction. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it closes in a couple hours, so we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I played with GameCube controls on Metroid Prime 2. I'm interested in the differences between that and playing with the Wii pointer that I'm going to be playing with. Mm. Uh. Also, oh, also, I'm looking forward to n- trying to avoid the er- the temptation to 100% this game. Like, I... <laughs> felt myself compelled to do for Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. Uh-huh. Uh, what I've heard is there is like permanently missable small lore text. Um, oh God, and no! Makes, I hate that. Uh, like a specific example is in Metroid Prime Two Echoes, one of the early boss fights. There's like a big grub, and then it disappears and grows into big a bigger thing. And you have to like scan it with your scan visor in the first couple seconds that it's a grub, or else you lose that text forever. Uh, and I'm hoping that lets me just feel okay to not want to get everything and not have a guide open and just try to explore and yeah. like, get the space in my head and get that feeling. Yeah. Um, it might go the other way, and I might get freaked out about missing things. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely gonna challenge myself to to get frustrated and like yeah. be frustrated um, because that's something when, when we were playing Majora's Mask where I just mm-hmm. didn't allow myself the time to do that. Um, but yeah, I, getting lost and, and being like, oh, where am I supposed to go? Okay, I'll pick this up tomorrow and let my brain turn it over in my subconscious for a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I say we I say we do it. Yes, let's. <laughs> okay, and we'll be back in a, in a moment to talk about Metroid Prime. Welcome back to Super Smash Echoes. We just finished playing Metroid Prime. It's done. We did it. And uh, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about it now. Hey, Justin, you're still here. What's up? And I'm still Majoran. How you doing? <laughs> I'm still Justin. I'm doing uh, pretty good. I I am glad that I played a Metroid game. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I was telling you the other day that it ended up uh, grabbing a hold of me a lot more than I thought it would. And I was I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed the game. I would say, yeah. What was what grabbed a hold of you? Um, I think well, we'll we'll talk about structure in a little <laughs> bit. But I think the reason that I was kind of wary of starting the game, which I talked about in, in our intro, uh, <laughs> was just being worried about the the bad side of a metroidvania of like i don't know Mm. where i'm supposed to go or i have to do a bunch Mm -hmm. of backtracking now um i don't want to kind of run around like a chicken with my head cut off for a while and there was some of that in metroid prime and we'll talk about that later but i think the game was more 
linear than I expected it to be. Yeah. And also it was more satisfying than I expected it to be returning to an old area and being able to do something new. So Mm -hmm. the game, the gameplay loop and the progression of it actually was more compelling to me than I expected. And then I actually got invested in the, not necessarily the story uh, per se, but the like narrative experience of, of what was going on. How would you, how would you say the, how would you say the narrative experience unfolds while you're playing Metroid Prime? Uh, well, there's a way that it unfolds that I don't like, which is hmm. scanning stuff. Um, I yeah. uh, this is you know probably an annoying thing to say, but I don't really like reading things in video games. <laughs> um, so there's but but this game, if you're down to read stuff, there's lots of cool things to scan. There's like the records of the Chozo civilization that used to live on this planet that Samus is on, uh, Talon. And there's computers with like the records of the space pirates and you get to read them talking about like, uh, Samus is running around. We got to do something about her or like, Oh, we've had this super scary thing. That's totally going to kill Samus. You guys. (laughs) Um, and that stuff is great. I wasn't so, into reading a lot of it so i probably missed a mm-hmm. ton of stuff but that's one side of it and then i think the other side of it is the things that i was a little more invested in were the the way that the game kind of like mm-hmm. the enemies that you're seeing evolve over time like once oh. you fight the space pirates now the space pirates are all over the place and mm-hmm. you kind of get a sense of like here's what i really like about samus uh and sorry if i'm talking a ton at the top here. That's all right. Um, But what I was coming to realize, what I really like about Samus as a protagonist is that nobody sent her on this mission, right? Yeah. She just responded to a distress call um, Mm -hmm. out in space at the beginning. That's where the tutorial happens is Mm -hmm. you find the space pirate ship and something has happened to it. They sent out a distress call and something went wrong. And it turns out there's like a big mutant alien monster inside she responds she responds to distress call realizes it's her enemies and starts shooting them as they're dead on the as they're almost dead on the (laughs) ground yeah and then she proceeds to follow ridley to the planet's surface because she's like okay Mm -hmm. something is up here and i'm Mm going to take it upon myself to to address the situation and so there's this just from like who samus fights and how she interacts Mm -hmm. with the environment you get the sense that there's like multiple motivations for why she's going on this mission and they're all self-directed. She wants to like do the right thing and make sure that this planet is fixed up. She hates the space pirates and wants to kill them. And she has this reverence for the Chozo civilization Mm -hmm. because they're the people that like raised her and she wants to sort of do right by them. And yeah, the game doesn't have to do much to explain to you that, that that's what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was really invested in that just that like, it's just Samus. She's directing her own motivations and her own mission. And there's like many ways in which this, this mission matters to her. Yeah. Yeah. I felt um, there were several things about the game that were supposed to draw me in as the player or get me to identify like I am Samus 
Uh, yes. Like shifting true. from a 2D perspective to a first person's perspective. Um, and there's features like the heads up display of the game is physically sa- the inside of Samus's helmet that you can see mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah. And uh, if like an explosion or a big blast blast of light happens near you, you can see Samus's eyes reflected on the visor. That was my favorite thing in the whole game, by the way. The first time yeah. I saw that, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> that's really scary. Um, yeah. But that what a unnecessary thing to put in, <laughs> but so powerful when it first catches you by surprise. And you're like, oh, man, I'm literally looking through Samus's eyes at what's going on. On the other hand, I kind of got a different feeling from that. Uh, like seeing someone else's eyes in front of me. Uh I felt actually like a bit alienated like by that. I it it, it reminded mm. me that I wasn't the person who I wasn't the person in the game, and I think that right. really doubled down on this mystery of Samus, uh, especially early on before you have a lot of lore of she. I'm doing this as a player because I know I'm playing a video game. I know I've got to get power ups in order to move on. I don't really know why Samus is doing this. She's got her own motivations. True. That's cool. <laughs> True. We're going to find out about each or I'm going to find out more about her as playing. I thought yeah. that was very effective. Yeah. I, and I think that ends up being, it. it's a smart way because if this was an RPG or something, you could mm-hmm. make those decisions for yourself of what the character's motivations are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a smart move on the part of the developers of the game to think about, okay, it's a first person game, but you, the player, like mm-hmm. you're saying, still have a third person perspective on the character and yeah. mm-hmm. you have to sort of be in dialogue with the character and choose mm-hmm. to role play Samus specifically mm-hmm. and figure out like, what does that mean over the course of the game? Yeah, I did. I did find, even though it's a like objective based video game where you're just like running through areas and shooting things. I did find myself role-playing and thinking about what Samus would do a little bit. Like there's some areas where you sneak up on space pirates before they see you. And I'm like, should I shoot them? Is this okay (laughs) to engage in war this way? (laughs) The honorable thing to do. (laughs) By the end of, by the end of the game, I was definitely like, they would always attack me. I was, I was shooting first. Cause I, cause I realized that's, that's how Samus operates. Right. I think it's interesting how Samus is in, is engaging with uh, this, like we mentioned, the Chozo people, uh, like the people who raised her. It kind of felt a, a bit like she's trying to reckon with history and, uh-huh. and kind of reflective uh-huh. of the ways that we all like reckon with our own pasts. Uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of lore text about uh, uh, the Chozo on this planet, Talon the Fourth. It's not their home planet, but their home planet was really developed with like technologically, I guess. This is like an offshoot of Shozo people who decided they want to live more in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. And their approach to how to do that was to go to a literal different planet and start occupying it. Right. Right. It, fe- it felt like Samus would want something that maybe Samus would want to confront them about. about. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't just like occupy a new wild space. At first it was kind of giving me like colonial vibes, but, uh, uh, like they're going to a whole new area, uh, mm-hmm. but the game made it clear that it was kind of it was at least the same solar system that they already lived on. There's mm. uh, there's a really cool sequence where you run through a planetarium with like 3D holograms of the planets in this 
world yeah. and one of them is the is the planet from i think metroid one and the, another one is the planet that you're on mm-hmm. uh, but it, it it did it did feel like maybe these chozo who are acting like they know know everything and they could, they part of it is like they could see the future they know everything about nature mm-hmm. it, it felt like i wanted to <laughs> engage with them like but why why are you living here why did you move <laughs> yeah. into this yeah. pristine area right uh and and just they're literal. The only ones you see are literal corrupted ghosts of them. They're right. in the past, and we can't directly engage with historical figures the way we'd want that way. Yeah, and th- that's the other thing that makes this more this game more immersive in the sense of you are trying to put yourself in Samus's shoes because there's just you never interact with another character in a conversation. <laughs> the only people you interact with are people that you're fighting, and so it's really up to you as a player to to determine the extent to which you think about the internal debates that Samus is having over the course mm-hmm. of this. And you could be a Samus that sits and reads every single um, <laughs> set of hieroglyphics, or you could be a Samus that just like runs past them and, and doesn't read them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's something that I appreciate about the game as well is ultimately all of the character is really just about Samus's interiority. Uh, and I think two things that are interesting to think about, um, Samus's suit is a Chozo suit, right? Yes. And, and so that's, that must be something for her to consider. She's looking at this group of Chozo who, um, rejected the level of technology that she has incorporated into who she is Mm -hmm. to the point where like Samus is the suit. Uh, That's who we think of her as, as opposed to herself. Um, I I don't think the game ever textually (laughs) like addresses that, but, but that's, you know, something to consider. This group of chosen people living on Talon four, like claim they've like separated themselves from technology, but also they've also all over the place. Yeah, they've got elevators everywhere, uh, and they've literally brought guns for Samus's Chozo suit because they have seen the future and they know how the player is going to play through the game, and they've put guns and missiles where the player is going to go. Yeah, so it's there's some hypocrisy there for sure, Mm -hmm. Um, and the game kind of uh, I think ultimately the way that the game brushes that aside and portrays the Chozo as doing things the right way, even if they are colonizing the planet is because you see the stark contrast between their structures and the space pirate, cold, yeah. sterile mechanized mining facility and the phase mm-hmm. infested fungal growths and, and, you know, acidic water caused by the, the Metroid prime deep under the earth's surface. That contrast between the three of how each of them are interacting with the environment mm-hmm. is is another part of the storytelling of the game that's communicating to you like all of the factions at play and how you feel about about each of them. That phase on uh, antagonistic force of this substance in the planet that that struck me as something that I could really relate to. Just uh, be I, it might be because it's from an American studio from a time that I've been alive. Um, mm. But it, uh, the the phase on really felt like sort of an amalgamation of 
a lot of things that Americans were scared of uh, in this sort of like 2000 pre 9-11 period uh, mm. when the game was being developed uh, before it got released in 2002. Uh, in, in what sense? Like pollution type stuff or? Yeah. Um, so the, the backstory is there is uh, this big meteor that crashed into the planet and embedded itself uh, deep, deep under the surface uh, and started leaking out this radioactive substance phazon. Mm-hmm. And the Chozo realized there was this incoming, uh, increasing global catastrophe uh, mm. that this phazon was going to leak more and more out and destroy more and more of the wildlife. Uh-huh. And it felt like a response to uh, how we felt about global warming in that time. Right. I think an- another big fear they wrapped into it was um, sort of modifying the self uh, that the bad guys, the space pirates, took this phase on and uh, started injecting it into themselves and injecting it into, um, or it, what seemed like maybe like newborn uh, space pirates or at least new space pirates that they're bringing up. It wasn't totally mm-hmm. clear what the space pirate life cycle was, but mm-hmm. uh, and killed a lot of their own soldiers in the process, but eventually figured out how to make them, even though have like a shorter lifespan and more aggression, still have uh, more muscle mass specifically, mm-hmm. something they called out, and uh, more effective at fighting and it it really felt like uh, a response to like fears about steroids in the 90s early 2000s like oh, that was like the height of the steroid er- er- era of baseball sure yeah a couple other things wrapped in like at, at uh just the idea of radioactivity and like a fear of like nuclear power um mm-hmm. and like pirates were considering using like phase on it for power, I think, but it but ended up uh, not not semi not semi safe, and they switched to like geothermal energy, right, right, uh, right. And also like a little bit of fear about like genetic engineering. Like Dolly the Sheep was in 1987. That was like a new technology that was that was yeah super huh. in, in mind. I, I think and it, it it wrapped a lot of a lot of these ideas of like a lot of things that could be really bad in the future um, at in 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I got from thinking about all that is that I really cannot relate anymore to Phazon feeling scary. <laughs> there, there are definitely moments in the game, like when I first saw ghosts or when I saw like really big enemies, where I felt yeah. kind of freaked out. But uh, I didn't, I didn't get like upset at this idea of like a corruptive substance or like the world getting worse. And and what I realized is like, I think we're in a really different spot. In, mm in 2021 than we were in 20 in 2002 i think that's part of why the lore is hitting in a, in a different way now because we're just in a world that is getting worse and we're not like <laughs> anticipating that it's just happening is that kind of what you're saying yeah. yeah yeah i think that's part of it especially or especially like in terms of the like global war metaphor like mm-hmm. it fe- it felt very 2002 how they're addressing it like their representation of global warming is something from literally outside the planet comes in and is right. like destroying things. Uh, mm-hmm. And Samus, as one mercenary, has the ability to kill uh, a big Metroid that's causing it, and that'll that'll fix it for this planet. I see. Yeah. Right. Or until then, not like there's there's no real thought about like how we're going to address it. There's no real. It doesn't really. There are like bad a bad government of like the space kind of government that's like abusing Phazon and mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. things worse for like some, some for like themselves. But yeah, the, the force making 
the force that's harming nature is this like totally external thing um, that at least in, in the lore of the first game, I don't know where the series is going to go, um, had no like, there was no agent that caused it. Uh, I see. I see. And yeah. And no like structure that caused it. Right. Whereas nowadays we, at least when we're thinking about climate change, yeah, you know, the, the very human causes and structural causes of it are what we're more preoccupied with. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I definitely found the phase on stuff and the Metroid prime part of Metroid prime to be not particularly compelling. It just felt <laughs> like, uh, this is how you make something spooky in sci-fi is mm-hmm. it creates mushrooms <laughs> and it's like, Oh no, well, it didn't make big them, mushrooms uh, or it does, but it makes them look gross. Right. Well, critically there are like mushrooms on the, near the surface of town overworld that look the same as the mushrooms that are in around oh, the okay. meteor, but the mushrooms in the meteor are very big and the mushrooms <laughs> in the surface are small. So yeah. it makes things big. <laughs> okay. Got it. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely found the space pirate, part of the story a bit more compelling just seeing them seeing them accelerate their own demise with such (laughs) such greed and like blindedness um there was Mm -hmm. there was a human element to that that i found interesting uh and then to see that ultimately just result in like and now you fight the dragon man (laughs) and now you go fight the the evil thing corrupting the whatever um, was a bit of a bit of a meh moment for me. Yeah, it felt like the story pretty much ended right before the sequence where you have to wrap up the game. The the yeah. last bit of like exploring and unlocking new stuff is you go deep into the mines and you fight the one time they managed to actually make phase on work the the omega pirate the one yeah. member of themselves that they managed to actually make huge and fully incorporate phase on into its body uh that felt like the final boss and then there was more game after it yes i definitely agree with that um so do we want to do you have more to say about the story and theming or do we want to talk about like the game structure of the game itself i think one other thing that that feels different uh now then in this like Y2K era is just like what technology is. Um, yeah. Like the things Samus gets in the game are all physical hardware objects, uh, new weapons and new like jump mm-hmm. uh, boost vooms uh, <laughs> and new like visors. Mm-hmm. It feels like, uh, it feels like now uh, when we think of new technology, it's more uh, it's moved past hardware, past even software. And now it's, it's, uh, new things that we can do with data and new things that we can do with network and what we know about people already. Um, mm. I, I, I would think like may, maybe this will show up in Metroid Prime 4. It might end up uh, that the unlocks might be more of like a network effect, more like internal to the systems within Samus or within her with suit. Mm-hmm. I'm interested if that's where the story goes. If, mm. or, the, the story that they tell through what the upgrades are themselves yeah. you're saying yeah i feel like i think metroid prime 4 was probably going to have drones oh uh, sure yeah i could see that um something <laughs> i on that topic um i watched this great video essay on metroid prime by mm-hmm. a youtube channel called the geek critique 
Uh, he mm-hmm. has a, a really good Metroid Prime video essay, and he makes the point about something else uh, equipment related that's pretty dated to the early 2000s, which is uh, the existence of half pipes in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you unlock the ability to shred. You you can go faster your ball, and the first thing the game says is scanning half pipe half structure pipes detected. detected. Yeah, it's like come on, <laughs> come on, that's love it. Silly. Um, so that's also very very two thousand two. <laughs> you mm. can go on the half pipe, but yeah, let's let's talk about the structure of the game, maybe the different zones and power-ups and and what we thought of the progression of it. So essentially the way the game plays out is that you start with a tutorial sequence aboard this pirate ship where Mm -hmm. you learn about most of your upgrades. And then by the end of the tutorial, there's an energy burst that disables uh, Mm -hmm. pretty much all of your abilities. Samus slams into her wall and her shoulder pads fall off. Yeah, for some reason. And then she can't go into a hot area. (laughs) <laughs> right uh it's incredibly arbitrary but it, you know it is what it is and then you are on the surface of talon the fourth talon four and you essentially go around to different areas on the surface there are different zones that are kind of uh around a common theme and in the process of going through the zones you discover power-ups that allow you to do new things or open new doors or access mm-hmm. new areas that might impact where you're going to go next or might impact where you have to go back to now that you have greater access. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and something yeah. that I wasn't expecting is that the game fairly regularly will prompt you, um, mm-hmm. telling you where you should be going, uh, which I didn't expect it yeah. to do, but that was a You can turn that off feature. in the menu, but it... It really doesn't make much of a difference because there's usually only one new place to go. Right. Especially when you unlock new um, colors of weapons that let you unlock new colors of doors. Mm-hmm. There's like two of the new color of gore. So you go, well, I have to go to one of these two places. Yeah. Yeah. In the intro, I thought, I thought, I mentioned that I thought it was, you could get power ups in like pretty much any order, but it is pretty much a linear order exactly of the of the way you're supposed to get them yeah and the game even tells you what the next one is yeah yeah you might have some freedom in like when you collect certain bonus upgrades mm-hmm. or energy tanks to increase your health or missile expansions or whatever but the mm, or if you're like buggy abuse the physics and get things there's probably there's probably definitely ways to get things out yeah, of order um, i think so uh but yeah the game not the game's really linear which which was, I I thought was welcome, um, yeah. Because I I was struggling at times to get my bearings in 3D space, and at the beginning of the game, the first place you go to, the Chozo ruins. I think that's that is a really tightly well designed area that mm-hmm. loops back on itself multiple times and yes. gives you this kind of like smaller version of what the whole game is like, yeah. and. I don't think I would have felt the need for guidance if every zone was self-contained like that. But then pretty much as soon as you get to the second zone, which is the Magmore Caverns, it's lava stuff, you pretty soon after get access to the Fendrana Drifts. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Which is the ice area. And then you eventually get to the mines and pretty soon you are bouncing around from area mm-hmm. to area and there isn't really another place after that point that's like a self-contained zone 
uh, in the yeah, same way. Yeah, maybe the the last couple floors of the mines are kind of self-contained. But yeah. Yeah, I was expecting the game to be like, you're in an area of the game. Maybe it's like one level, or maybe it's a level with like a few rooms from a different level. I thought it was going to be like, there's there's like three things to get in this game in this area. You're gonna fight like three mid bosses after and that get you three weapons, and then yeah. you're gonna go to the boss of the zone. And beating the boss right. of the zone is gonna get you uh, the artifact MacGuffin that unlocks the next part of the game. And when you right. collect all the artifacts, then you can go to the final area. Uh, but uh, yeah, what if what it ended up being was kind of more uh, linear in some senses of um, it's not complete this complete area one at a time building up to a big boss it was more like there's there's always a next one next thing to do and it's somewhere on the map um might be often in a similar spot but sometimes in a different spot yeah. and sometimes it's like you you fight a boss and then you're rewarded by getting a, a big power up sometimes you just go to a room you've been before and at the end of and then you have a new power up so that lets you do a platforming segment and then you get a new power up right. or sometimes you go to an area that's new and it's just a big, exp- it felt more like a, a bit more random. It felt more yeah. of a surprise than I was expecting of what are, what reward do I get for doing what type of action? Right. Cause there will just be moments where you mm-hmm. kind of like, I organically stumbled upon the, the sunken wreckage of the ship from the yeah. tutorial. Um, yeah, and I was so... like, wow, it's a pain in the ass to be in the water like this. I was so mad. Cause I, when I got, <laughs> when I got to that area, I went into the second wreckage cause I thought I had enough and it let me yeah. go so far in for like 20 yes. minutes. Yes. And I was in this really, really big, uh, tube area with a bunch of platforms that was very hard to get to the top of or to get to the middle of because i kept falling off and there were these enemies in that underwater who didn't really attack you but they could move you off of the platform so you fell all the way to the bottom and had to spend several more minutes to climb back up and then and then when you finally get to that when you finally get to that door it says okay you can't move on here until you get the ability to move through water better why why let me get to that point (laughs) (laughs) right um and it and it's like it's all the way over there and it was my fault for not doing for going to a side area instead of going for the area that the game said the scan was go to this spot i tried a different spot yeah <laughs> it that was a frustration point i i think the game is at its strongest i i think there are genuinely fun moments of like self-directed you're exploring and you're like, oh, I can do this now. Oh, I'm just passing through a room that I was in before and I'm realizing I can do this. Uh, like, oh, there's a spider ball thing that I can magnetize to mm-hmm. and go up there and get a little power up uh, or a bonus or whatever. Um, but the game honestly is at its strongest, in my opinion, when it has you in a fairly self-contained linear section. Yeah. So whether that's the Chozo ruins at the beginning, I thought was a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it honestly felt like a Zelda dungeon, uh, yeah, yeah, to me. And I was kind of expecting and hoping that the whole game would, I, it, it, it feels like prime. What it really wants to be is a set of interlocking Zelda dungeons mm-hmm. without any of the other stuff in a Zelda game. Right. Yeah. Um, and there are bits that do that well. And then there are bits that like the Magmore caverns, it's like. I just ran through there a bunch of times on my way to other stuff. Yeah. 
The Magmore Caverns, the volcano area, is kind of laid out as like a bunch of of rooms in a in one line. It's not really interlocking the same way as the ruins was. Right, and there's not like a there's not a narrative to to those caverns really either. Whereas other parts of like my favorite part of the game, uh, well, two of my favorite bits of the game, I think, besides the Chozo ruins. I really loved the part where you're going into the space pirate research facility and you're <laughs> learning about the experiments that they've been doing and <laughs> you see like, Oh, they've been like isolating these little Metroids or whatever. Yeah. And then you get the night vision, the thermal uh, visor, and then all the lights go out and now you have to fight your way back out of where you are <laughs> the way you came, but the lights are out and you have to use the thermal visor I thought that part was really cool and was the most genuinely suspenseful moment of the game for me. Um, The game, um, also the game, even as a GameCube game, um, renders the camera in three different ways of the like regular, regular camera, a like fake uh, infrared heat mm -hmm. vision that Mm -hmm. where like each enemy has like how hot is every part of them. And the ice beam is like dead cold and the fire plasma beam is the hottest. uh, Yeah. And there's also a X-ray vision um, that uses a different rendering technique of um, the closer it is to the camera, the the lighter it is, and the further it is, uh, the darker. Right. Uh, but like hide or show hidden or fake objects. Yeah. Uh, very cool how they have set up different cameras. Yeah, I thought that the visors were were really great. I think the scan visor. I wish that the scan window was bigger, but uh, mm-hmm. even that was was interesting how it uh, blurs out everything outside of the frame of, of what mm. you're scanning, uh, just to give a sense of like what, what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be focusing on individual objects. Um, but yeah, that, that sequence where you get the thermal visor <laughs> and you're fighting your way out and it's the game's introducing Metroids to you at the same time. Um, yeah. That first Metroid that showed up that they had a cutscene that zoomed in on it. That was scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was fantastic. And then I think going through the sunken ship, is also a really cool linear sequence mm. that the game doesn't tell you to go back to later. Um, but you get to have this experience of like, cause the tutorial is also pretty good, I think. Yeah. Um, and you get to have this experience randomly by surprise in the middle of the game where it's recontextualizing yeah. the entire tutorial sequence by sending you through the same ship, but it's, been turned 45 degrees and it's half full of water and none of the doors are operational. Um, and I thought that was also a, a, a cool conceptual little episode to, to go through. Whereas the bits where it's like, okay, go from the ice world to the lava world. Now run to the overworld. Now go to the mines, go here, go there. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just kind of felt like I was following the directions that the game was giving to me. Um, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have a clear sense of like why I was just thankful that I didn't have to figure it out for myself. Cause there didn't seem to be a yeah. way to figure it out. Um, yeah, for like new doors, you can, uh, the, the way that I would have figured it out without a type system would have been like scanning, looking at the map very carefully and seeing where there's a room that yeah. I haven't been to or yeah. a door that I haven't opened, but that that's would have been a little bit difficult. I think I had um, a different experience from you um, okay. in the stuff where you're just going around to different areas. And I'm going to get to this. I, I think the reason is because I was playing the Wii game, the mm. Wii version of the game, which okay. probably was 
from what we've talked about was seems significantly easier. Uh, okay. I played the game version, by the way. Uh, my overall sense of these points where I'm just going to different parts of the, of the world to just get the next thing. My overall feeling was I was vibing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think um, what I was talking about of how it kind of seems a little bit random or it's like surprising what reward you're going to get for doing something. It's not always like a mid boss gets you a new upgrade. Sometimes it's like a platform gets you an upgrade. Sometimes a mid boss gets you a new area. Yeah. I would, before I played this game, I would have thought the game design effect of that would be uh, like surprise and like building anticipation in the player. Mm-hmm. What I realized the actual effect on me was I, I found it hard to figure out what the rhythm of the game was going to be. I guess this is, yeah. this is kind of matching what your point of, of like, sometimes we're just going to different areas. Uh, for me, um, especially when it wasn't these like areas that themselves were compelling narrative, like you're going through a sinking ship. Uh, for me, when it was just like, you're going to different spots, uh, the game kind of felt more samey. The game kind of felt like, flatter like i was always mm-hmm. kind of doing the same thing uh-huh. i was always just going to a couple new rooms uh-huh Espe- yeah especially when i got a, a big upgrade and there's like a few different rooms i can explore uh but this it didn't feel like a tight introduction to zelda dungeon in that's in those senses as, mu- as much as it felt like just going to the next couple spots mm-hmm. but that saviness uh felt like a huge vibe <laughs> I felt very relaxed <laughs> playing it. I felt like, yeah, yeah I'm just going to go do some more stuff. Maybe some enemies are going to pop up that I can just immediately clear with my great Wii Remote aiming skills. Uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just chilling. I'm relaxing. I'm just going to do the next thing. Hmm. Um, definitely, if the game were like any longer, that re- relaxation would just stretch out until into boredom, I think. Yeah. Well, and the I, game was like 14 or 15 hours. If it was any longer, that, that would have like snapped that like... S- pulled out that taffy a little bit too far until it snapped. I just got bored and stopped playing, but I, but it just felt like vibing and I love that feeling. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I definitely had moments like that too, um, where the game's like, go over here and you'll get something. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. sounds good. Whoa. Oh, there's a, I can grapple in this room now. That's kind of sick. Oh, this connects to that. It's like that. Uh, one of my favorite feelings in real life when you're in a place and you realize that it's right next to another place that you know (laughs) and you're like oh yeah this street goes there this turns here um and that definitely happened in this game a lot i think my frustration with it just to be transparent was also colored Mm -hmm. by the fact that like i was having to complete the game to talk about it on a podcast right Mm -hmm. and i think if uh if i were to just sort of play this game at the pace that i naturally would want to uh i'd put a you know 30 minutes in until i get to the next save station one night and be like yeah okay that was fun a little errand that i just ran i'll i'll pick this up tomorrow Mm -hmm. um but Having I think to, if I were playing at the pace that I want to, I would have given up at some point. Yes, I think that's that's also probably true. Yeah. Another thing that's really compelling in the game is is going to a new area and trying to guess at what you're gonna get. Uh, mm. Like seeing in mm. the ice area, there's a lot of like electrical enemies, and I'm thinking, oh, am I gonna get an electric type weapon? Uh, yeah. I think that's that's 
how this sort of video game can engage. We we were talking about like Majora's Mask, how it how it recontextualizes um, tools uh, and items from from Zelda games. Yeah, I think that's one that's one way to build on your history is to like suggest what's going to happen coming up in the game and and get the player excited to maybe get the tools in a different order and or use them in a new sense. Oh, that's kind of what the tutorial does too, right? It it oh, essentially yeah. tells you, "Hey, you're going to have a grappling hook and you're going to have a charge <laughs> shot and you're <laughs> going to turn into a ball later." Um so look forward to that. It's going to be <laughs> fun. Anyway, uh can't do it right now. Sorry. Another another thing that uh makes the game not kind of the same the whole time mm-hmm. is is um how there is like there's a sense of the early game the mid game and the and the late game are different like you're talking about the tutorial uh like the first area in the chosen ruins is mostly get pretty much all of the things you had in the tutorial get your basic kit back of yeah, right. the charge beam the missiles the morph ball and bombs uh mm-hmm. Then in the in the mid game, it's a lot of like getting to new areas and then getting your new tools of your different weapons and your different visors, and mm-hmm. those will unlock new areas. And then in the late game, once you have pretty much everything, uh, and especially once you have finished all the areas and you need to wrap things up, the late game is all about uh, getting those artifacts together uh, mm-hmm. in order to unlock the final area. Yeah, I think that's something that you you mentioned you had a different experience with the artifacts than me, right? Uh, what was your experience with the artifacts? Um, I was confused. Like, like I mentioned, I thought the structure of the game was going to be like Zelda. Uh, how in Zelda you beat a boss and then you get the like uh, forest t- medallion that says you right. beat the forest temple. Right. I thought throughout the game we were going to collect these artifacts one at a time. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in addition to looking at the scan that where the game told me what to do next. I also kept periodically going back to um, the artifact temple where you eventually put in the artifacts mm-hmm. and seeing what the next couple were going to be. So I was like throughout the game thinking, how am I going to get these artifacts? Uh, mm. Is there, can I go to this area now and try to get it? Um, so I, I picked up a lot of them throughout a couple of them in the, in the early game and like eight of them in the mid game. And I only had oh, to go right. back and pick up the last like four at the end. Oh, okay. Uh, which, is kind of because I was actually playing the game wrong, and I I thought the game was had a different structure than it, than it did. But um, did you did you end up getting all of them at the end, or how is it for you? Yeah, I when I first came into contact with the artifact area, I thought it was like a bonus thing. I oh. didn't I, I didn't understand that it was like the end game of the game was collecting mm-hmm. these artifacts. I thought it was just sort of, I don't know, a cool set of challenges or something, or you'd get to unlock a secret area. I don't know. So there was some like lore hinting that you, you needed to get the artifacts, to get them, but I guess that kind of showed up late game for that lore. I also probably didn't. And it was, it. <laughs> it was also like optional lore that you had to scan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I basically ignored it um, until oh. the end of the game. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, it got to the point where I, I figured out that it wasn't bonus, but by that point I was like, I'm just going to do this all at the end. And so, yeah, I, I had to run around and, and collect them all at the end, which, mm-hmm. again, if if I was doing them that in isolation and it was like, okay, you know, this week when I play Metroid Prime, I got to get the artifacts, sit down, 
grab an artifact tonight because each one has a little sort of word puzzle that goes with it. You know what room mm-hmm. it's in, but you have to interact with the room in a new way. That yeah, if you, you open up your menu out. with the lore text in it, there's they there's like a keyword in the lore text for an artifact that matches one of the words in the name of a room, and that's how you know which room it's in. Yeah, and so I I thought I don't know I liked that as a as an idea for the late game where basically the whole mm-hmm. game is training you to understand the layout of the world mm-hmm. so that later they can sort of take away the support of telling you where to go on the map mm-hmm. itself and instead say like, okay, in Magmore, there is a big lake of lava where you have to blow up a pillar and it's there. And you're like, oh, I kind of know where that is. Let me go find that. Mm-hmm. Um and on their own, I think that they're fun little things to do. But in the context of the arc of the game itself, uh, they they just like break up the rhythm uh, of the game in a really strange way because it, yeah. you have to collect them right after what we were just talking about where you fight this huge um phase on <laughs> oh a super powered super soldier guy who's like a like huge story boss. wise it's also the build up to the stories leading up to that yeah and then and, you get 12 things and yeah the game's like go ahead and run around for a couple hours and get all this stuff and you say why <laughs> why can't the game just like end right here or something yeah it really felt like a like a post game almost given the the way that the rest of the game had been structured so clearly telling you where to go this this and that and each place that you go even though you're running back and forth between things you're still building this linear narrative of understanding the extent of the phase on corruption understanding the extent of the like stupidity of the space pirates that unfolds in a linear way <laughs> over the course of the game um and then it just it breaks that rhythm in in a strange way, which is fun and fine from a gameplay perspective. And I think if I were to revisit and replay the game, I wouldn't be as bothered by it. But in the context of me being like, I want to beat this game uh, and understand it in its totality, it's kind of like, why are you making me do this now? You're not even going to tell me where it is. And and they don't even make it. I'm surprised that you got as many as you did in the mid game, because some of those are like, like there was one that was in the Fendrana drifts in an area where the space pirates had their research facility. And I went, I went there more than once and didn't find it and figured, Oh, I probably need another ability to get this one. Yeah. You can't get that one until you have the plasma beam to melt some ice that you wouldn't you wouldn't even know to melt unless you like happen to i had to look this up but you like look out a window in one of the towers and melt the thing i okay it wasn't clear to me that that window was made out of ice i saw that the window was there i shot a bunch of stuff and then i realized the window was gone and then i realized there was there was a tower outside that i could it says like knock down the tower and you're in a yeah. room called the tower. I right. tried shooting everything in the room. Yes. You have to go to a side of the room and look out a specific window <laughs> at you know, a, different to see a different tower. tower. <laughs> yeah. And but it, it it like that's an area of the map that you have no no reason to go to except for when it shows up in the story 
And so then the game just sends you back there once you have the equipment that you get towards the end of the game. And I just don't really understand like the purpose of, of having a player do that, you know, mm-hmm. like the whole time that I was going through that, I was like, you, you want me to prove to you that I know how to traverse the map? Like I, I know how to do it. I, I've been doing yeah. it for the past 10 hours or whatever, or eight hours. I think maybe if they like put a few more hard locks on so that you're forced to get like half of them or like yeah. five out of 12 of them before the end sequence, then it, that might, they might've worked better. Yeah. If it was a kind of like, if they were interspersing the progression of getting equipment with the progression of getting artifacts, if those were intertwined with each other more, (laughs) more, um, purposefully, I think that would have been better. Yeah. But I, I mean, I still enjoyed doing, I still enjoyed the game. I enjoyed the overall structure. Um, I really liked, I really liked the whole save room thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was going to like that because I, I don't really like being punished for dying, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was just something exciting about having a sort of physical association with a particular save, knowing mm. not just like when in the game, but where in the world uh, I was anchoring myself to. And that sense of relief of like, oh, there's a small room on the map, please be a save room. And you open it up and it is. Um, it was a pretty cool feeling. Uh, so I really liked that. And I know we burned our, we played our dark souls card comparing Mario. I think, I think I am fine with comparing to dark souls every (laughs) single episode. I have held back on a couple of episodes, but give me, give it to me. Yum, yum, yum. Give me the dessert. Mm. (laughs) Metroid prime is very soulsy in certain ways, Hmm. right? Like the save room thing and the finding shortcuts between places and learning the world and Mm -hmm. being like, okay, I need to actually go back here to farm some stuff or it's obviously got some differences. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one really important difference is that it's not really fun to fight stuff in Metroid prime to me anyway. Um, And so it's, there's, it's not fun to die. Whereas in Dark Souls, it's like, ah, shit, I died, but at least I get to keep playing this game where it's fun to fight stuff. Um, and that, I think, is uh, a major a major difference. I think this sort of ties into the gameplay and just literally talking about the actual hardware. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, Rachel, how, how many times... You, you were talking about, like, dying in this game? Uh-huh. Uh, what was that? Like, how many times would you say you died around? Uh... Double digits, some somewhere between ten and twenty, I think. Yeah. Um, so, like I mentioned, I played the Wii version, where it just literally gives you more tools than the GameCube version because you can actually aim really fast by aiming your physical Wii remote. And uh, I died twice oh my God. Uh, when playing the game. <laughs> oh my God. One time was in Magmore Caverns. I just went to an area and I was like, "I'll go to the side area and see what happens." I wonder what happens if I just hang out in the lava a lot. And then when I realized my health was going down, I there was an enemy that kept pushing me back into the lava. So I died there. And then another time on the Omega Pirate fight, because that was a difficult fight. But oh my gosh. Besides that, um, just being able to aim at anything, it turned out kind of obviated all of the difficulty that was in the game. Uh, 
which I really appreciated. Like Majon mentioned, uh, the combat, there's a, the, most of the fights are not very interesting, um, mm-hmm. and kind of getting rid of them actually made the game like better. I could have, oh, instead of like I thinking bet. about like shooting things and thinking about trying to stay alive, I was just vibing. <laughs> I yeah, was just I going to the next spot in the game. Yeah. Yeah, the um the controls on the GameCube version if people are not familiar. Well, the controls on the GameCube version is I think the coolest th- how the game contextualizes the GameCube controller is so cool and I want you to talk about this. So, when I first started I had a really roller coaster relationship with the controls where when I <laughs> first started playing it it just felt completely wrong because it doesn't do what you want it to do after having played, you know, decades of console two stick shooters where you have ingrained in you the control scheme that should be happening and the game just doesn't do yeah. it. Could you talk briefly about what the control scheme of like most modern shooters is uh, for people yes. who don't play video games? So like the thing that I really wanted was you control your characters, uh, horizontal movement with the left stick mm-hmm. uh, and you control the where you're looking with the right stick. And so you can sort mm-hmm. of like fluidly look, move where you're looking and move where you're moving at the same time. Um, and then I wanted for the shoulder buttons to be like the weapons. Um, mm-hmm. Metroid prime does not do that. Yeah. It has uh, what my brother called tank controls Um where essentially your left stick um your left stick moves you it basically moves you horizontally i'm like even having a hard time conceptualizing it in my head yeah. um is it like the left forward and back is forward and back and and turn with the left stick left and right or how do you turn yes that's yes you turn. Oh my god! Yes, you turn left and right with the analog stick, and forward and back you move forward and back. Um, <laughs> if you want to strafe, you lock on to a target or just lock lock in with the L button, and then you can move left and right if you do that. Um, <laughs> and if you want to look up and down, you fix your position and hold the R button and then you can freely aim oh my God. your gun around, but you can't move while you're doing that. Um, yeah. So most of the game, you're not aiming around to aim. You are locking onto an enemy with the lock on button and yes. shooting directly at them. Yeah. And then yeah. you're okay. That is not the part that I think is cool. That part sounds horrible to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, and at first it was, And then I had this really wild moment when I was on my like third or fourth hour of a single sitting of the game. And I just started to have this like crazed thought of like, yeah, what it's, it's bananas that we just accept the modern shooter control scheme as, as the right one. And we only accept (laughs) it because we're used to it, but this game's control scheme is intuitive and it's correct. And it's exactly what this game needs. Yeah. The next day I was like, Whoa, this sucks. (laughs) What was I thinking? I Um, I think the thing is, okay. Part of the thing is this is a GameCube game and kind of early or is 2002 early or late for the game. That's kind of early for the GameCube. Really early. Yeah. 
Yeah. This is actually, like, we think of, this feels like kind of a modern game, except for the controls, and you yeah. realize this is actually a pretty early 3D game. Um, yes. And it's a really early 3D console FPS, too. Because, um, like, ha- Halo was only maybe half a year old by this point. So it's it's not the game's fault that they, like, didn't pick the standard control scheme of move around with the left stick, aim with the right stick, and fire with the shoulder button that you that you hit with your trigger finger, like you're literally firing the trigger of a gun. Right. They're, they're, it's, it's not the game's fault. That was not standard yet. Right. They're essentially adapting the framework of, like, GoldenEye uh, hmm. from the N64 or something where the N64 only had one stick, right? And so they're essentially oh, yeah. taking similar controls from GoldenEye or like mm-hmm. a, I don't know, Doom or something um, and adapting that to the GameCube. And there are times where it makes sense. Like when you're locked on to an enemy, it it totally works. You want for the yeah. left stick to strafe around. You want for your shoot button to be the A button because on the GameCube it's way more comfortable to rapidly hit the A button than rapidly hit the R button because yeah. the R button is like a chunky big click. Yeah, the Wii, Wii controls are way better. Way, you move way more with the left I'm sure. up on the left stick on the nunchuck is forward, left is go left, right is right, and you can turn yourself by aiming the Wii pointer left and right. Yeah, that, that sounds like it makes a lot more sense. Even um, when you're locked on, you can actually aim different places. So you can lock on and strafe and then fire at another enemy and then go back to the main enemy. Okay. Um, but yeah, so there, there's times where like, like when you're fighting an enemy that's way bigger than you or your height, it's mm-hmm. awesome. When you're fighting mm-hmm. three enemies or a small enemy mm-hmm. or when you're trying to like do th- platforming, it sucks. There were multiple mm-hmm. moments in the game where there were platforming segments where I just kept slipping off the edge of a platform or landing a jump wrong oh, because yeah. I couldn't move the camera around to look at what I was doing. Oh, that must have made it way worse. Yeah, I could. It, it is even on the Wii version. It's a bit difficult to move down, but that helped with that. Did being able to look down definitely helped with the platforming in 3D. Yeah. So I. Those are the parts where I got the most frustrated when I had to yeah. platform and I I wanted to talk to the developers and be like, listen, I know how to do this. I know how to jump. I just <laughs> I just can't because of how the controls work. Please just let me jump. Part of this game is as I think I'm learning more about what first person shooters are. And I'm I think we're gonna I'm gonna try to link to an article that that I've been reading about it. Um but I had the sense before, like like last month, that first-person shooters were kind of about running to places and aiming correctly, uh, uh-huh. and like lining up the cursor with the with the opponent in order to aim and like get them. And what I what I realized about Metroid is it's Metroid Prime is really a lot way more about uh, control of space, um, yeah, and like moving through space, both uh-huh. in terms of. Literally, you're platforming and literally you're unlocking new platform abilities and you're exploring a space. But the combat itself really felt like a translation of the 2D combat, where 2D combat in this in this kind of shooting Metroid game is a lot of like you're dodging by jumping, going walking back and forth to dodge like maybe things that are coming from above or dodging projectiles by jumping over them. 
And here they're kind of translated. It's all, here. It is really similarly about dodging. You can get through most encounters without taking damage, because enemies like shoot like slow projectiles at you. And it's just instead of uh, back and forth like in a two D game, you would dodge by strafing to your left and right, or sometimes jumping over things. And it's really it. It really is not a game about. Um, lining up to shoot things, uh, literally there's a button to aim correctly and to lock right. on it and hit the aim perfectly. Right. It's, it's about the other, the other parts of it, of uh, dancing around your opponent. Uh, but yeah. what, what I'm learning also while, while looking more and like comparing this to like Halo is those games are also about like control of space and like moving mm-hmm. through space. Uh, and the gun is like an area in front of you that is space that you can act with. But it is also like getting into the right distance from the enemy Mm. getting enemies where you want them or, or like getting away from enemies uh i didn't know that that's what that's like kind of more a general thing about first person shooters because mm, you're both managing the damage you do but also the damage that you take right yeah that's interesting yeah i uh well and i think it also deepens the the dark souls comparison um because that's yeah. also how combat and dark souls yeah, works true. where it's it's just about like how well you're dodging things mm-hmm. or even i mean it that's also how the Zelda difference works, is that right? the dodging in dark souls is is like interesting and deep and yeah. monsters have interesting <laughs> pack, attack patterns and that's not the case in this game yeah um it it also kind of feels like they're just adapting like the 3d zelda uh combat yeah. system of like how do you fight things you lock onto them and yeah. that way you can fight them in our sort of early 3d game in a way that we can manage um but yeah all of the boss fights the way that i was able to win them was not by getting better at hitting the boss it was by getting better at not getting hit so that i could survive Mm -hmm. long enough to actually kill the boss i was hoping the boss fights would be very zelda-y like the first big boss fight you do is against this like big flower that's poisoning everything and you have to use your uh you use the missiles that you had just unlocked in the ruins to um, realign solar panels to take away the, or realign mirrors to take away the like solar energy that's powering them up. And then you, you go into a morph ball to bomb the bomb spots that gets unlocked by like making the vines die off by taking away the solar power. I was hoping all of the bosses would be that sort of Zelda design of like a puzzle based boss um, using the mechanics from this level. And a lot of the bosses were just, do the combat of this game, which is not that good. Yeah, I think that boss ended up being the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the Omega Pirate boss was also fun. Uh, yes. But, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just trying to think of what the other bosses were. the The Fendrana drifts like snow rock guy wasn't that interesting. It was just like, yeah. hey, you got to switch between your visors to hit this guy. Yeah. Because he, he, there's like a the weak point is is hot, so you can switch your hot visor to lock onto the weak point. Yeah, which is not totally necessary in the Wii version because you can actually aim, but it's still pretty. It's pretty hard to aim without locking on with, with yeah. that visor. Yeah, I, I didn't find the bosses super compelling because ultimately the thing that's fun about this game is not the combat. The combat's yeah. just kind of like it has to be there because it wouldn't make sense, I guess, for there to not be combat. Um, but I more often than not was running past enemies whenever I could, as opposed to yeah. choosing to fight them. Which 
I mean, the game rewards has an explicit reward for beating it quickly. You get like a better ending at the end, so I guess they are expecting you to try to avoid fighting if you can. Let's talk more about the physical layout of the GameCube controller. Sure. The, the first part, well, the first part we already talked about that you shoot with the A button. So yes. In like the modern, the current uh, uh, layout of a controller on a first-person shooter, which I think is going to change. I think we're going to adapt more gyro controls to aim, like in Splatoon Two. And mm-hmm. then we might, uh, that might let us like use the right control stick to be like aim right left with the, with the right control stick means turn 90 degrees to your left. Uh, there's, a, there's like conversation that, uh, they, we might be, we might be entering a new way, way that, uh, first person contr- uh, controls work, but Interesting. uh, in the current, in the current setup, you move, uh, with your left control stick forward is forward, left is left, back is back. Mm-hmm. And you aim with your right control stick. Uh, aiming left like turns your character left a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because both of your thumbs are are occupied with movement, you then use your index or ring f- index or middle finger to fire the trigger button in order to fire the trigger in your controller. Yeah. On Metroid, it's a GameCube game, and they have done something different. The GameCube game, the design of the of the main buttons on the right part of the controller are des- are aren't like symmetric there's a big green button that's the a button then off to the side there's a little uh smaller uh red b button and two sort of banana shaped gray buttons x and y that are surrounding it Mm -hmm. and the idea is um like the controls for your game are supposed to be intuitive just look at the controller uh that whatever button you're going to be pressing a lot whatever the the main verb the main action that you use to interact with the game is that's going to be the big button the a button mm-hmm. so like mario the a button lets you jump um in like rpgs maybe a, a button is like advance in the menu or talk to someone or contextually interact with the sign you're facing mm-hmm. so in metroid prime of course it's a game where, where samus runs and shoots things and she presses the shoot button a lot of course you're going to shoot with the a button Right. And so I was I was even surprised like years later when I played a console first person shooter like a normal one that you didn't fire your gun with the A button that you fire your gun without using your thumb. And then and then because the A button is occupied, jumping moves to the B button, which is normally like a combat button. But in this game it's like the second most important action you do. So mm. it's on the B button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh I've been playing a lot of Halo with my brother the past few days uh, in the Master Chief collection, and we were uh, just wrapping up Halo Three, and um, the the thing that messes me up every time I play Halo is I forget which buttons do what because it mm. doesn't make intuitive sense. Like the only thing that totally makes sense is the right trigger shoots the gun, um, mm-hmm. but across first person shooters they jumble up the other buttons, you know, which yeah. one's jumping and which one's a melee button and which one changes your weapons because all the buttons are, you know, equally sized and it's just sort of an arbitrary decision. Um, but I'm a big proponent of the GameCube controller. I think it's a fantastic yeah. controller. Um, I really like using it for smash because <laughs> the having a central button of your four makes it a lot easier to like simultaneously press multiple buttons or quickly switch between buttons. So like in smash, I can jump and attack at the same time uh, with the A and one of the 
one of the gray buttons in Metroid, um, you can having the jump in the, and the fire button right next to each other, um, allows you to like, I was doing some stuff in some of the boss fights where I was very quickly tapping between them to like dodge and then shoot and dodge and then shoot. And I, at one point was just remarking at like, Oh my God, I'm doing this really fast. Um, hmm. inputting these attacks and, and like dodges. And then the other thing that's, that's cool that, that makes intuitive sense is like, um, all of the beams have a powered up version of the beam or like mm-hmm. a special thing that you can do once you charge it up and press the missile button and the missile oh, button yeah, is right. the missile button is the Y button right above the A button. Yeah. So you can just hold the A button and then tip your thumb down a little bit further to do the extra special powered up version of the thing. And it's like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense that that works that yeah. way. Um, and you can up- hit both those buttons with the thumb. Oh, right. can I can I go? Can I talk about how that translates to the Wii version? Yeah, because uh, they've used they've used the same logic. Um, so the Wii controller, the front of it has a big circle for the A button, and then the back has like a trigger on it that you could point and shoot like a gun with the B button. Uh, they have taken the same logic as the GameCube version. They say shooting is what you do all the time. We're going to put that on the button that's on the front of the controller so everyone can see mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So you shoot with your thumb and you jump with your trigger finger. And it's the same thing. Um, you can hold the a, the big A button to charge your weapon and mm-hmm. then fire a missile with it by pressing down on the directional pad that's right on top of the button. Okay. So just like on the GameCube controller, you can use both of those with one thumb. You can hit both of those at the same time with one thumb to do the combo action. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's intuitively interesting about the way the GameCube controls are set up is Mm -hmm. the way that you switch between beams is by Mm -hmm. using the C stick, which is the stick Mm -hmm. on the same side of the controller as those, the fire button and all that other stuff. And so it makes sense that like, yeah, I wouldn't really need to switch my beam while I'm using my beam. So just put them on the same side of the controller. Yeah. um, Because there's not really a situation where, you would be switching while you're trying to fire at the same time necessarily. They've they've laid out this UI really intuitively, right? Um, the yeah. GameCube controller has these two sort of uh, circle budding areas off. On on the left side, there's a directional pad. On the right side, there's a directional stick. Yep. And they've matched that on the screen of the UI, right? Yeah. On this on the screen of the UI, in the bottom left and bottom right, there's the kind so, of selector parts of the HUD that show you which mm-hmm. visor you're using on the left and which beam you're using on the right. And so it makes sense that like with the left side of the controller, that's the side that controls where you're looking because it's like oh, how you move, it's how you wow. lock on and it's how you change visors with the D pad. And the right side of the controller is the stuff that you do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where you change your beams. That's where you use your guns. That's how you aim. Uh, shoot things more specifically. So the layout like makes intuitive sense. It's just that it doesn't hold up to like our modern expectations of what we want to be able to do um, Hmm. with like kind of more precise control over your movement in space. Especially aiming. Especially aiming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my favorite, the most intuitive 
well communicated part about the layout also, I think, is um they they if am I right that they lay it out on the screen uh, matching where it looks at your controller? Like the scan visor is like up or left on the it's in the bottom left area of the screen because mm-hmm. it's on the bottom left area of your controller that hits it. Yes. And the late and the visors and beams are are in cross shapes where yes. you uh, touch you you hit the thing in the right in the same direction of the cross to match the, that icon that you want to switch to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's so intuitive and so well communicated. Yes, I think so too. And the the one that's in use is always in the center of the cross shape. Oh. And then when you shift to another one, all the little squares move so that they move back to where they would be for you to input the command to switch to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then the one that is becoming active moves into the center. So it's all it's always super clear and consistent. What am I using right now? How do I switch to other stuff? Yeah, on the Wii controls, they ha- they use up literally every button that they can for other controls, uh, besides maybe the top of the D-pad or something. Um, so for switching between beams, it's 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 really inconvenient. You hold down a diff- uh, minus or plus buttons in an awkward spot of the controller, and then you aim to different parts of the screen to switch between them. Oh, okay. Um, that's less, that didn't work as well as the Wii version. A couple other points about uh, shooting I wanted to add is... Uh, before I played like shooting games, I, I, I mean, it was it was in before I played shooting games. It was in that era of like people being afraid of like Grand Theft Auto and being afraid of like Call of Duty and really and the idea of just like these violent games about like experience about like uh, engaging in violence and cut and mm-hmm. making people bleed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, I thought before I played shooter games that. The idea was to make playing the video game feel like shooting a gun, mm. uh, and like I, I don't. Well, I don't know what it's. Fortunately, I'm not in a position where I know what it's <laughs> like to shoot a person with a gun. Right. Uh, yeah. Same. But it definitely does not feel like that in a video game. Um, video game. A lot of video games about shooting, I'd say, feel like uh, trying to aim and click on the right thing, like clicking on the right icon on a screen. Yeah. Um, in I would describe the physical experience of, of the physical experience of shooting the a gun, especially the basic gun where you can in this game where you just shoot a lot of balls of energy. It kind of it feels like um one of those air cannons, uh one of those big cannons where you can it's got like a big tube and then elastic stretching along a bit of a bit of plastic or so you can pull back on the elastic and then let it go to shoot a bunch of a burst of air. Mm. Uh mm-hmm. The power beam coming out of my uh, out of my remote, especially since I'm on the Wii remote, feels like I'm just poof, poofing a little yeah. puff of air, uh, and like a lot of lots of little puffs of air if I want to shoot the button really fast, mm. and that that feels very nice to me. Yeah, I that's something I hadn't appreciated, but yeah, when you're when I was playing Halo, like mm-hmm. I mean, the reason they're called triggers and the reason that they put the gun on the trigger is because it's meant to at least on some level, feel like you're pulling mm-hmm. the trigger of a gun. Um, mm-hmm. But I <laughs> I don't cherish that feeling <laughs> particularly. Yeah. Like, it, it's fun to play those games, um, but playing this game where shooting is the A button, um, it's, it made me, like, it made me feel less violent, I guess. Mm. Um and it sort of 
refocused what the game was about for mm-hmm. me. I think also because the combat wasn't very fun. Um, but it, it kind of like detached me from the visceralness of like shooting something uh, mm-hmm. to instead just sort of see it as like another, I don't know, like interaction with the world almost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't, and I don't know if that's better or worse, but it's, it's definitely different and it fits, mm-hmm. it fits this game and what it's trying to do a lot better. I do have one com one moment or uh, one more moment I remembered where the combat was really fun in the game. What was uh, that? So because the game is designed like uh or especially at first designed like this big Zelda dungeon of interlocking parts, mm-hmm. I was worried it was gonna feel very like lock and key design, very like I need to get past this ice door, so I need to get the fire beam in order to melt the ice, and that's the mm-hmm. only thing the fire beam does. Mm-hmm. There's some sense of that, but uh there's there's also a lot of senses in of how the things you unlock not just the thi- the equipment you get for Samus doesn't just let you unlock new areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also changes how you interact with space and changes how you engage in combat. So one example is um, there's these areas in the ice zone, the uh, Fendrana Drifts, called Baby Shiroths, and there are these uh, like big mammal-looking things with the big crystal of ice on their back. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have to shoot the ice a bunch in order to make it break uh, and and then expose their weak part to to shoot them and to get them to stop uh, attacking you. Uh, And so I I saw this and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a fire beam to melt the ice and hit hit them. Mm. Eventually you do that, but before you do that, you unlock the electricity beam. And if you shoot the ice part with the electricity beam they get stunned and then it's way easier to walk around them and aim at their reach mm-hmm. point with, with the mm-hmm. beam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's not just, uh, you unlock the thing that you get, that gets you to the weak point or, or you unlock, uh, something that is like a hard lock in an area. There's also like, there's also softer locks where the, stu- the upgrades you get do uh, to some, to some extent, uh, give you more tools in, in combat and just right. moving around. Right. Yeah, like when I got the ice beam, uh, mm-hmm. I was being I was attacked by a space pirate with a jetpack, and in my head I was like, "Huh, I wonder what if I just tried to freeze this guy and shatter him with a yeah. missile?" And I did that, and it worked, and that felt pretty cool because yeah, the ice beam isn't just a thing that opens the white doors; it's a beam of ice that can freeze some stuff. Yeah. Or with the super bombs, when you get those, um, I a Metroid latched onto me and I turned into a ball and I was like, I bet a super bomb would completely blow <laughs> this guy up. And it did. And suddenly it made fighting those Metroids a lot easier. It also meant that I ran out of super bombs before a point where I needed one. And then I had to run back and try to find one, which was really annoying. But, um, but yeah, it is cool the way that the equipment changes the way you interact with the world and uh, gives you more tools and also just kind of like makes the game easier in a way that you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily realize until you're running back through areas that you were in before and you're like, Oh, I can double jump. Now this area is, is cake. This is nothing. Or like, Oh, I can be a boost ball now. So I don't even have to do this part. (laughs) I Um, can just boost, go fast through it. Yeah. 
which is a fun a fun feeling to just kind of breeze through rooms that were really scary to you earlier yeah a couple of miscellaneous points uh in the intro i was wondering whether it would feel more like all one world or like discrete video game areas um yeah i think like having an ice world and a lava world felt kind of video gamey but yeah i uh, think so it did feel like an interconnected space because of there's no fast travel you have to keep walking through the same space so you Mm -hmm. learn uh which paths to take to different space um and some of those paths involve uh going through multiple areas as the shortest way so it did feel interconnected in that sense Mm -hmm. uh Another small touch that I really liked when you have the x-ray visor on and Samus like holds your hand in front of her face because oh, yeah. she got hit. You could see the bones in her hand. Yeah, that's cool. It's a bunch of stuff in the game like that. That's cool. Um, I'm trying to think if I have anything else. It's really fun to be the ball. It's just <laughs> kind of like a Metroid specific thing that mm-hmm. is fun to do. I don't, I don't really know what more to say about it, but it, it they was... made the ball a little bit bigger compared to Samus' size than in the 2D games, I think, to yeah. try to make it a little bit make sense that she can fit in this ball. <laughs> right, right. Oh, there is oh, there is one bit of lore of trying... Uh, the uh, space pirates are trying to, uh, like, uh, reverse engineer Samus' technology, and they did come mm. up with elemental weapons. They were not successful at recreating the morph ball and they crush several of their soldiers to death in the process. <laughs> There's that's, some good lore. That's really funny. Uh, oh, two more miscellaneous points. One is the lore. Um, they didn't hire a writer for this game. Uh, oh. So they had Nintendo Treehouse's big translator, Nate Bildorf. He wrote the actual text for oh. all of the like, lore text. That's cool. Uh, another piece... This game was released at the same day as Metroid Fusion. (laughs) And now it goes like years and years before we get a Metroid game, but there were two released the same day. Weird. It's really strange. (laughs) That seems just eating into your own market. That's very weird. Fusion was a Game Boy game? Game Boy Advance, yeah. Game Boy Advance. Weird. Um, I have... Yeah. I have a last like bigger topic that I wanted to talk about. I have I have one quick miscellaneous thing. Go for it. Go um, for it. The the one moment where it felt a little dissociative, like what the game wanted me to do and what I would think Samus would do, um, mm-hmm. is when you get to the bottom of the phase on mines where the space pirates are mining this dangerous substance, and mm-hmm. you get to this force field, and on the other side of the force field, you see this area infested with Phazon and these Metroids flying around Mm -hmm. and the game clearly wants you to turn the force field off to go in there and in my head I'm like Samus wouldn't do that that thing's full of Metroids why is she gonna open this door (laughs) doesn't make any sense I'm not gonna do that Mm -hmm. and it just was (laughs) the game made me do it basically and then I had to fight a bunch of Metroids and it's like come on This doesn't make any sense. She's not stupid. She's not going to just like freely waltz into a room full of these things. Um, but yeah. If you if you uh, lower it from a distance, you can get the Metroids to attack the space pirates instead of you there. Oh, that's pretty smart. Um, I think the, the last big topic I had was also on the experience of like playing this in hardware of just 
We went through some challenges to play this video game. Yes. <laughs> like you mentioned, you mentioned last time you were like in an eBay auction. How did that go? Um, I won the auction, which was nice. Okay. Um, so I played it on the GameCube. I still had the same issue that I had when I played Majora's Mask on the N64, which is that my TV was showing this game at like 480p stretched across an HD TV. And oh. I, I could either look at that and look at it stretched horizontally in a weird way or mm -hmm. tell the TV to show it at 480p resolution as like a tiny section of the TV. Oh, itself. no. And uh, so it, when we do more N64 and GameCube games, I need to find a way to like upscale mm -hmm. them to actually be look good on my TV. Um, but other than that, it, it was fairly smooth i mean i i played so much of it today that it got to the point where my gamecube was this game has no loading screens really it just it has yeah. like cut scenes when you go in elevators and sometimes mm -hmm. the doors don't open right away um because they're loading the room on the other side but that was really cool that there's there's never like a loading bar yeah. at any point in the game um but was, well they the game is carefully designed to support that like yeah uh, there's 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 this vibe of the game of like oh I'm exploring oh I'm going into a tight area and then it's opening up into this big area oh right. I'm it's it's <laughs> cool like different uses of space but the reason why there's always a tight passageway before a big area is because that's when they're loading the big area right right um, but I was playing it so much today that my GameCube was starting to like get too oh hot and like freeze up a little bit and I was like oh. Oh, I better stop playing soon or I'm going to break my GameCube. Um, but otherwise I didn't have many issues, but I know that you had some, some yeah. major headaches. I mean, you shouldn't have had to play this game on a 20 year old console. There should be better support for, yes. yes. Uh, preserving the history of older games. Um, I, like I mentioned, played it on the, <laughs> in order to play this vi one video game, I played I made my Wii U go into Wii mode. I think I bought it on the Wii shop within the Wii U. Oh my god! I, I might have bought it on the Wii U eShop, but <laughs> that was that was way in the past. Uh, the Wii U version, by the way, has the features of the Wii version, but with like slightly worse textures in a couple spots to fit them all on one disc. Uh -huh. And can you believe it? They've removed me support. Ugh! What the heck? <laughs> what What was the me support in this game? Um. I think in the Wii in the Wii adaptation of this game, you could like save your save file as your custom me. On the Wii oh. U version, you could only pick guest like pre-made six guest me as one of them to represent yourself. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, but when I started to play, like, first of all, I thought, uh, just make this game on a system I I have so that I don't have to go through all this hassle. Right. I right. thought I had Wii remotes. I had I got my Wii U from a different place to bring it to my Wii remotes. It turns out I didn't have Wii remotes. I had to have like to get my parents. <laughs> thank you so much to them to bring me Wii remotes to play them with. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then I, re I replaced the battery with those Wii remotes. And then after a couple of days, I'm playing the game and the camera is not really tracing in real time, but it seems to be yeah. working okay. And then it starts getting worse and worse. And then some of my buttons stop working. And as it oh turned gosh. out, there was battery acid left over from the old batteries in the Wii remote <laughs> that was corroding the new batteries. Oh, and so no. I had to look at 
I had to figure out how it's to clean battery there. acid, possibly. <laughs> yeah, it, it came from the game into the real world. <laughs> we have picked the wrong company if we want to have good support for, for old games, I think. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I know people talk about this with Nintendo a lot, but like, come on. <laughs> I, I would buy it <laughs> if this was on the Switch. I would buy it. Uh, it can't be that hard to to make that mm-hmm. happen. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's like small things like they still have they've still picked a weird um type of computer, so it's gonna be hard to port games in the future. Like uh I don't know. They they are they are they as a company they don't make choices. They're and Nintendo like keeps talking about their history, like they have Smash, they uh where you could learn about all these other video games mm-hmm. and then they don't let you play them. Right, right, yeah. I tried to structure my notes so that we wouldn't end on that note, but we ended up ending on that note. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's worth saying it's mm-hmm. it's going to be a recurring thought throughout this show, right? Is accessing yep. these games. The message is that we enjoyed playing this video game. Yeah, and you know, for what it's worth, uh, I think the silver lining to that is that I got to. I mean, I I'm playing on my GameCube that I had when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and. I'm playing a game that's like a seminal fundamental GameCube game that I didn't play mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, and so I got to have an authentic, you know, one of the mainline GameCube experiences on my GameCube. And that's kind of nice. I mean, yeah. I would love to not have to do that, but having done that, I I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, speaking of important video games, uh, we're going to play another one. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. Uh, for our next dive into the Nintendium Compendium, representing the Yoshi series, we'll be playing 1995's Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island for the Super Nintendo. Nice. It's our first, uh, truly Super Nintendo game that we're playing. For the podcast we have carefully avoided making every single video game in this in this uh super nintendo game yeah <laughs> we have because this this could have just been like super mario world uh super metroid, super metroid. yeah <laughs> we could have really just done that and we said no we're gonna play We've donkey Kong country avoid- tropical freeze that's what we're going to do <laughs> <laughs> um, um yeah. If you want to find me on the internet, I'm at Notepad Bridges on Twitter. You can also follow the show at, at Smash Echoes on Twitter. Uh, where, where can people find your stuff, Magellan? You can find me on another podcast where I'm talking about television instead of video games. Currently, that show, overall, it's called Chats, a television podcast, but currently mm-hmm. you can find it by searching uh, Peaks Chats, a Twin Peaks podcast, because we're currently watching Twin Peaks. Um, you can also find us at... Uh, What's the website? Simplecasts.com slash chatspod. No, chatspod.simplecast.com, something like that. You can you'll you can find us. You'll figure it out. And we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash chatspod. Uh but yeah, that's uh You are preparing early for the Persona 4 episode. Do I? You're you're just you're just preparing years in advance for when we talk about Persona 4. Is that Twin Peaks related? Uh yes. Okay. It's one of it's at least people on the internet say it's Twin Peaks related. I have not played that video game and I've not played Twin Peaks. Okay. Watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> All right. Um 
please, uh, I have, I have a uh, sign off I want to try out. Yeah, do it. Hey, please turn off your computer. Turn it off. Why? <laughs> Just don't leave your computer out all the time. Have oh, a yeah. moment in your life where you're not on the computer. Okay. That's good. What should I do? Do you now? have a sign off? Do you have a sign off? Um, go, go kiss a cube. Go. <laughs> I don't know. It's just anything cube shaped. It's a pretty useful shape.